This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again. They've given us 30 minutes of your precious time as we talk about the political issues of the day. And today we have special guest, uh, Washington Chief Correspondent for the New York Times, Carl Hulse, uh, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the Democrats and some of the House infighting and House Democrats, but also about Charlie Watts. You are a garage band authority. Aficionado. So welcome, Carl. Thank you for having me and RIP, Charlie. We'll definitely get to that. So this week, uh, Speaker Pelosi brought the House back and they cleared the way uh, for passage of the $3.5 billion budget resolution and then the $1 million, uh, oh, I'm sorry, $1 billion infrastructure bill, but not without pushback from some of the centrist Democrats. Can you explain to our listeners the objection of the nine Democrats and what that, di- what that dynamic is? Well, I think you've you got a lot of dynamics going on there. One, one dynamic is that uh, those guys, those nine people, they want to get reelected and they are worried about the party looking too progressive. So what they were saying is, hey, we have a bipartisan infrastructure bill that was negotiated with Senate Republicans. If we pass this, it goes to Biden right now and we create a bunch of jobs and let's get credit for that. And uh, Nancy Pelosi has another plan where she wants to use that bill as leverage to get her big uh, uh, social uh, benefits bill through later this year. And so she doesn't want to do that. And, you know, they spent a few days haggling and came up with sort of a, a compromise that didn't do much for either side, but they can say they did it. You know, never count Nancy Pelosi out, Jerry. It's just one of those things. She's been she's been in these positions uh, so many times and she really usually pulls it out. So it actually gets a little harder from here now for her. So we'll see. This is going to be a real test of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Uh, if they can, if they can get these bills through, and and it's kind of interesting because that was kind of my next question. She must be pulling her hair out. I mean, she's got these <laughs> centrist Democrats, and then she's got uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez on the other side, who we know as AOC. The progressives on the other side. I mean, is she is she getting frustrated? I mean, these these guys only got a two vote margin in the house. Yeah. So, I mean, is she getting frustrated with this? Well, yeah, what she has is uh, no no margin margin for error. I think that, you know, she's a super experienced politician. She knows that her factions need to uh, do certain things to prove to their supporters that they are, they have some clout. Uh, I think that, but here's something that I've been thinking more about, Jerry. I think a lot of the Democrats realize, you know, there's probably very little chance they're going to hold on to the House. Uh, so their control of Congress is going to be gone. Yes, traditionally. So there, I think sure. a lot of Democrats are looking at this moment and saying, well, we have to get everything we can right now because mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is our shot and it might yep. be our, our shot for a while. So there's, there's a, I think, a growing understanding that this is it and uh, they got to go for the uh, go for the gold. And I had talked to Chuck Schumer 
uh, right as they, they finished up and left town. And uh, he, he had an interesting comment. He said, anything we get is going to be better than nothing. So mm-hmm. we need to mm-hmm. figure out what is the best, uh, mm-hmm. biggest piece of legislation we can get through and go with it. And so that's what's going to happen here over the next six weeks or so. They got to get down to the details of what's in this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. And I, that's when it really gets tough because now you're fighting over, you know, specific projects. The budget was basically just this big outline, mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the, the real stuff isn't even in there yet. So there's going to be a big fight. There's, there's no, there's no room for, uh, for mistakes here. So yes. it's going to be very, very interesting. And then of course you also have the voting rights bill, which they passed mm-hmm. in, the, in the house to, uh, reverse some of these Supreme court decision again, stuck in the Senate. None of the Republicans, uh, except for Lisa Murkowski, potentially, have said they could support that. So what are they going to do about that? I mean, there's a lot of Democrats who are saying, yeah, it's fine to get these big pieces of legislation through. But if we don't do something about voting, these Republican state legislatures are going to kill us. So how are we going to get going on this when uh, you have Democrats in the Senate who don't want a monkey with the filibuster. So a lot going to be happening here. Uh, and plus, they have to fund the government. You remember that, Jerry? You know, <laughs> that little thing. <laughs> It'll be a continuing resolution of some sort. Right, they, right. They Kick it down the road it. for a while. <laughs> yeah, they got the debt limit. I mean, when you talk about Nancy Pelosi pulling her hair out, I don't know about that. But she uh, definitely has a lot on her plate. So it was interesting. I just read Madam Speaker by Susan Page, which was a kind of a biography or uh, on uh, Pelosi and uh, Pelosi couldn't have read a more glowing book herself. Uh, but uh, what was interesting about it is they asked Pelosi, uh, you know, what was her biggest training or the best training she had for um, being the House Speaker? And she said, raising children. I think she had yeah. five kids. <laughs> That's so funny because she was saying, well, basically each kid had a different need and a different temperament and you had to give them, you know, you kind of dealt with them. Too. So he, she's basically got 435 children that she's dealing with right now, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was interesting reading that book and we were talking a little bit about AOC because um, AOC seems to be a, a young Pelosi. Pelosi came in and she was uh, really pushing hard for, you know, AIDS funding and things like that. How do you think she is like AOC and how is she or how is AOC like her and how is she different? Yeah, I think uh, there are some similarities that is interesting. Uh, But Nancy Pelosi, she came up through conventional politics. You know, her family, as you know, obviously was big in uh, Baltimore politics and she was uh, chair of the Democratic National or the the Democratic Party in California. Uh, And, you know, at a time when women, uh, it was not easy. And, you know, it's not easy now, but it was was much tougher back then. There was a lot of sexism and chauvinism in politics. So she uh, came up uh, a little bit different from AOC. And I honestly was there. She won a, she won a special election. And as you remember, sometimes weirdly, if you get elected in a special election, when they swear you're in that day in Congress, in the House, you're the only one. So they let you give a little speech. So, And I, I remember her being out there. I don't know what she said. And uh, 
you know, we all said, well, this is going to be an interesting new member of Congress, a younger woman. Uh, and so, but she was a bit of a rabble rouser, but she did it a little differently than AOC. Nancy Pelosi herself has talked about the differences saying, you know, she was a mother and had already experienced uh, mm-hmm. all that and had mm-hmm. a different view of how things work and how leadership functions. But I think uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, AOC have kind of come to, I don't know if it's a, a, a overt understanding, but they seem to be able to work around each other now. And, you know, if I know Nancy Pelosi, she'll find a way to leverage uh AOC to to her advantage, you know, and get her to help her do this difficult work ahead. Because there are progressives, uh, and AOC is not the only one, who aren't satisfied with these bills, and they would like more. That's not going to happen now, but they're certainly going to want to have a big role in framing these the actual legislation. You know, what's in, what's out. So, uh, but you know, Nancy Pelosi, I've had differences with her over the years on stories and and policy and uh, analysis. But, uh, you know, I think everyone, Republican and Democrats, recognizes that she's been a historically strong speaker. And and it's kind of interesting with AOC, because when she came in, she was, you know, kind of spouting. And I think Pelosi pulled her into her office and said, basically, sit down and shut up for a year and learn how the process yeah. works. Before you and that say. doesn't work anymore either, though. You know, everybody's, you know, it used to be, remember, guys wouldn't give their maiden speeches in the Senate, you know, after, until they've been there two or three years. And now right. that right. happens immediately. Politics has, has changed. Uh, but... Uh, I think that they're they're alike, but they're also different, and and the way they came to politics is different. I mean, it is really in uh, Nancy Pelosi's DNA. Oh yes, and um, how big has the social media been in that? I mean, AOC is um, you know she's all over social media. How has that impacted kind of people like her who they're not as much almost politician as they are a brand anymore, you know? Yeah, right. No, I think you've nailed it there. I mean, uh, social media has done so much to politics, but yeah, that's uh, AOC. Uh, She really knows how to use that. And and it's been super successful at it. I I think that's a huge difference that's gone on in Congress, uh, certainly since we've been covering it, is if you, you know, someone like AOC would have really struggled to even break through and get any attention at all in, in conventional politics. You know, you get to give one minute speeches or whatever, but who's going to pay attention to that? And she has really uh, used social media to her advantage. And, you know, a lot of the younger members just know how to do it. And, uh, you know, that's in their DNA. So, uh, but, yes, you know, Pelosi's yeah. office has managed uh, to do their own social media strategy yeah. too. It's just, I don't, can't think of anything that's been particularly exciting, but yes, uh, yes they get yes, their yes. message out. And, yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. yeah, AOC, she's got a big future in politics if she wants yes, to stay at it. Yes, I don't think there's any yes. doubt about it. 
Yeah. And I guess the social media, it reminds me of, you know, the emergence of that it reminds me of like the C-SPAN impact on Congress. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing. This infighting, though, among the House Democrats, especially as you mentioned, the midterms are coming up and it's almost like a, I don't know, it looks like a cannibalization to me. You know, they're going at each other at a time when they really should be united in trying to um, to save the House. Is this fighting, ensuring the fact that they're going to lose this thing? I mean, I don't think the, I think, don't think the fighting is. I think it's a response to what they see as an extremely difficult midterm landscape. And it always is, as you know, you know, with the president in power and people are going to take out uh, whatever dissatisfaction they have with the president on the uh, poor schlubs who are <laughs> running for, for house seats. And, uh, I think that, you know, with the redistricting going on, the blowback that there's going to be on some of the Biden uh, policy, now we'll have to see how what's going on in Afghanistan plays out politically, too. And I think Democrats just see this is a tough environment. And these moderates are, are thinking, how do I how do I get reelected? How do I how do I navigate this? And one way they decided that they would navigate it is to seem aggressive and pushing for this. You know, it's a, the the infrastructure bill, Jerry, did much more conventional pork mm-hmm. bill. This is mm-hmm. just a big <laughs> pot of money that's going <laughs> yes. to uh, pay for a lot of things back in uh, cities and counties. And back in the day, this is the kind of thing people came to Congress for and right. to get these projects. So they wanted to get that out there. Uh, they got a you know, an agreement for a, a date certain in September mm-hmm. on the vote, but it, that vote was going to happen anyway. Sure. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of theatrics there. And I think the moderates came out feeling at least that they'd gotten some attention on, on their position. But I just, you know, the, there's a huge divide in the party right now. Mm-hmm. And you have Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, they want to go big. Bernie, Bernie's idea for this bill originally was $6 trillion. Yeah. Uh, and then you have, you know, Kristen Cinema already saying she won't go for the $3.5 trillion bill. So right. it's going to be a lot of push and pull. And But at the end of the day, as I said earlier, I think Democrats see this as their, this is their moment. And they mm-hmm. got to figure out a way to grab it. They may be fighting all along the way, but I think they want to get to a successful end. But do they know, okay, we're going to lose the house, but um, is self-preservation taking over? Uh, these nine Democrats ended up voting, you know, the way Pelosi yeah, wanted sure. to vote. But is self-preservation taking over, you know, doing the job? Yeah, well, I think that self-preservation is always uppermost in the minds of a lot of these folks. And uh I don't think that it's going to help them hold on to their seats if the whole thing breaks down. Mm-hmm. At, at the end of the day, I think they realize that you have to get some legislation. Failure is not going to be a good selling point. I mm-hmm. think right now, and I'm covering some of this uh, at the moment, right now, member Democrats and members of the DNC, they're out selling uh, this uh, these this forthcoming bill. Like, here's mm-hmm. the good mm-hmm. stuff that's going to mm-hmm. be in here. Here's what mm-hmm. we're going to deliver. I was right. with uh, uh, Senator Michael Bennett. He's going around talking about the money he wants to get for uh, 
forestry and watersheds, you know, Colorado out here has been uh, pummeled uh, with fires and mm-hmm. uh, the, the results of that. So they're, they know at the end of the day, they might fight, 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 but they have to get a bill to Biden's desk, uh, mm-hmm. two bills in this case. Uh, and then, you know, then they have to fund the government and do the debt limit and all sorts of mm-hmm. other things. But uh, if they can't complete this deal, I think it's going to be much worse for them than, you know, this infighting going into it. So you've been covering Congress for three decades. And um, how do you see this kind of looking back historically since you've been covering it? How do you see where are we in terms of history here? Uh, we're in a very partisan, polarized place. Uh it just is about as bad as certainly I've ever seen it. So I started in 85 Reagan administration. And there was there's also a tendency to to uh, sort of think too dreamily about the old oh, days. Oh, romanticize. Yeah, yeah romanticize. Everybody, yeah. everybody got along. And of course Uncle they, Ronnie. They, yeah, I mean, they really didn't get along. And uh, I mean, you mentioned Newt, you mentioned C-SPAN and, you know, Newt Gingrich, he would not have uh, been successful without C-SPAN when yes. it started. He yes. turned, he's sort of the, that's when you make the analogy to social media, it's a good analogy because he used that to his advantage. Yes. So things got, you know, got progressively uh, nasty, but I just, right now to me, there's just so little common ground between the parties and, uh, you know, the, the, breakdown of relationships. I wrote mm-hmm. a story mm-hmm. a few weeks ago about why, how the lack of trust on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. is making everything so difficult. And literally no one trusts anyone up there anymore, even people in the same party or certainly the Senate and the House. And that's why you're having some of this uh, infighting with the moderates, because they don't, they don't know for sure how things are going to play out. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think it's it's poison right now. And it you know, the Afghanistan is is an example. There used to be you know, a little bit of room uh when you would have such uh, catastrophes, you know, mm-hmm. maybe hold back on the criticism mm-hmm. uh briefly. No. I mean this is just full on uh Republicans pounding the White House and Joe Biden and uh, People ask me, how is it going to get better? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if it is going to get better. People are really, really uh, down in their bunkers on their positions and compromise is a dirty word. And it's interesting, and I'm glad you brought up Afghanistan because I wanted to ask you about that. Um, this week we had the the, uh, the suicide bombing that killed uh, uh, ten, so at least ten American 13, soldiers, believe, thirteen yeah. now, and um, that was it. Probably could not come at a worse time for Biden. I mean, that was just um, you know he's resolute on this pullout. The Republicans said from the beginning, hey, if we leave, the terrorists are going to take over. How damaging was this uh, for him this week? It's been a pretty bad week for him. Uh, I think it hurts his administration. One of the things they were uh, obviously selling themselves is competent, that they had all these veterans of past administrations, many from the Obama administration, who knew what they were doing and, you know, some top flight people. And I think the ordinary American, there's no uh, great desire in America to stay in Afghanistan. I think everyone knows that poll Mm -hmm. after poll has shown Mm -hmm. that. But 
people are sitting here going, well, we needed to get out and this is how we need to get out. But it's not the view of, you know, the American pullback that they would like. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, you know, it's chaotic. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, the president, you know, was dealing with that. That was one thing. Now you have uh, deaths mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Marines over mm -hmm. there. And I think that really amplifies this. Uh, and I think it's going to be, you know, part of Biden's legacy, obviously, in the White House and definitely not a part that he had, had counted on. The politics of it are different. We'll have to see because of the uh, public apathy and, you know, I think probably more desire to get out of Afghanistan on the part of most Americans that see how it plays out over time. You know, there's a pretty big pile on going on. Uh, with Biden uh, from uh, the the Washington uh, side of things, analytical mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those people were those who had supported the war in right. the past. So it's right. kind of difficult, you know, to see how, whether that's going to all stick to him or people are going to come to different conclusions over the next few months. But the deaths of the troops uh, is definitely devastating. So when I, I just thinking about that, I think of the Beirut bombing and mm -hmm. uh, the Reagan and, um, it, in the, in the long run, it didn't really, I don't think hurt them. And, and the news, you know, the news cycle, I mean, it goes, I mean, in a year from now, are we talking about Afghanistan? I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that's the big question. Uh, Republicans definitely think that they've got an issue here. You can tell by the way they're sure uh, so aggressive on it. But, you know, they have their own problems on this issue. Trump wanted to get out. Trump was dealing with the Taliban and they were supporting Trump at the time. Uh, you know, people who are calling for Biden, to resign, <laughs> Republicans, they were the, they were right behind Trump. When he was doing this. So, I mean, and, you know, so there's a lot of twisting and turning there. Yes. And I think, you know, voters in some, they might not get every detail, but in some innate way, they understand these things. Well, and, you know, they know politics and yeah, politicians and so are going I don't, to, It's yeah. not like some super clean uh, uh, <laughs> right, sure. cut for the Republicans. Yeah, sure. Okay, we wanted to talk about important issues this <laughs> week, and that was the death of Charlie Watson. As I said, you are a longtime drummer. You and I have discussed uh, garage bands and covers and all that great stuff. And I was surprised at how much attention that got. I'm down in St. Petersburg, Florida, and it was on the front page of the Tampa Bay Times. Were you surprised at how much attention it got? You know, who reads who reads papers? Baby boomers, right? And uh, and pays attention to the news. But the Rolling Stones, uh, they're, you know, like the Beatles. They are such a cultural moment. I, I guess I'm surprised that it's everybody's still talking about it a few days later. But uh, it was it was a blow to me uh, because I as some, I started playing drums in elementary school in the school band uh, in the 60s and obviously gravitated immediately into rock and roll. Sure, <laughs> sure really bang on the drums there too. And Charlie Watts was just an idol of mine. I mean, he just, uh, he was, he was so steady and it, uh, no frills, you know, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, we all liked Keith Moon and, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. John Bonham, but, mm -hmm. uh, Charlie was a guy you could, you could really emulate. And most of us weren't going to play with bands that could really carry off, you know, 
uh, a Keith Moon style right, drummer. Right, right. You, you want know? to kick him over and set yeah, him on you fire. Be, <laughs> right. You want to be a steady presence, and uh, he was he was certainly that. I mean, just think about uh, satisfaction, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And and nothing fancy in those beats. It's just snare, hi hat, crash, and bass drum mainly. And but it just is. It, it just drove the song. Uh, also, Charlie, he stuck with the tra- traditional stick grip, which I do too. Mm-hmm. And so I had a, he had a special place in my in my drumming heart. Now, when you play, and again, well, you know, we're in cover bands yeah. and we play these songs over, what was different about playing his songs than other people's songs? I think it's just, it was just the steadiness of the beat. And with bands like ours, you know, you re- the drums really need to carry it because yes. you have to, you know, this is not everybody's full-time job and you kind of have to keep everybody moving in the direction, same direction. And I think because he was just such a uh, metronome, right? Yes. He, yes that yes. he could just pick up his beat. And sometimes I feel funny when I'm playing Stone songs because I am adding more than Charlie did, right? <laughs> With some fills and stuff. And I'm like, it's, it's almost sacrilegious. Right? <laughs> who, who am I to think I can improve on Charlie Watts? So just back yes. off. But it's kind of interesting. And I think the visual is exactly say what you said. He had a four piece kit. I mean, yeah. we see these rockers with 30 drums and yeah. seven cymbals. And this guy had a four piece kit for 60 years. Yeah. And, Very and, basic. and, and hundreds of hits, you know, I mean, um, and I, that probably stems back from his jazz training, you know, he, yeah. Uh, yeah, and he, that was also why he used the the old uh, the traditional grip. I mean, that's much more a jazzy uh, way to do it, and you can get a lot more out of your left hand in some ways on the snare. But it's just all snare drum, yeah. and uh, you know, and then the crash at the at the end of uh, his little fills, and uh, just and he, and he also, but also the demeanor. Yes, and the posture, yes, yes, right? Yes. Uh, remind me of Max Weinberg, who also has great posture as a drummer. Sure, you know, I sure. don't. By the way, yes, I'm always yes. slouching around. <laughs> and these guys, because they're, they're sitting straight up, and yes, he had the great yes, Taylor, very nose. serious, very. And in very, that band, you know, uh, where everybody else is pretty much uh, some kind of pirate. Yes, uh, you know, he was the great gentleman, and it, just a moment in rock and roll. You know, yes. and here the stones are still out there. Uh, I'll be interested. I have no idea. I'll be interested in who they get, you know, how they do it. Yeah. And you were mentioning the snare. And I think the thing that was in, you know, I had one of the songs I love to listen to is Beast of Burden because yeah. he has that crack in the beginning. Yeah. But then as you listen to it, there's like these syncopated throw ins, you know what yeah. I mean? Where you think it's going one way, you know, it goes the other way. And um, you're right. That was just masterful and, and also such a unique style and, and probably one we're not going to see again for a very long time. Yeah. Everybody. You know, everybody likes to really be fancy on the drum kit, right? And show these great. I, I truthfully, the last thing I want to do uh, when we're playing is play a drum solo. You know, it's oh just, gosh, like, yeah, I'm mean, just not into it. Bad. But uh, you know, but to uh, so I hope folks listen to Charlie and say, you know, hey, you know what? Less is more here, and I don't have to be uh, going around every drum and cymbal like uh, every second you know you yes, can just exactly play, right. play steady 
Yes. So let's talk about your book, Confirmation Bias. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was a book I wrote uh, a couple years ago. It was to explain uh, how the judicial confirmation process had gotten so off track. Uh, when I started writing the book, uh, we weren't in Brett Kavanaugh land yet. Uh, my book was mainly about how uh, the fight over Merrick Garland, how that had happened and how uh, Mitch McConnell was able to deny Barack Obama a Supreme Court pick and uh, but and how that helped Trump. Trump really benefited from that fight in 2016 over the empty Supreme Court seat, gave people a reason, conservatives a reason to support Trump, knowing that he would fill the seat rather than Hillary Clinton. So that was a motivator for them. Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, you know, it was about halfway through the book, the whole Kavanaugh thing blew up. So the book, uh, it covers from the day uh, Antonin Scalia died. It was uh, mm-hmm. February 14th. Uh, I remember Valentine's Day, I believe, mm-hmm. and on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was at band practice uh, mm-hmm. when I got the news because I had turned off my phone for practice mm-hmm. <laughs> and turned it on. And, it and the world's up. blowing up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that was. Uh, so, well, you had your priorities straight, Carl. Yeah, I mean, so, you know. <laughs> it went. So the book tracks from there to Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation and all that it means. And it goes through the history of these confirmation fights, which, you know, has been really since every administration since Reagan. And uh, I think that people who wonder what's going on with the Supreme Court right now and uh, why that 6-3 division is so pronounced on a lot of the big issues, Mm -hmm. uh, I think my book tries to explain to them how we got here. Right. And I think you also um, were credited with doing a great job of making it, first of all, kind of conversational so people could understand it. But also, you know, within that structure and that process, you're seeing how the American political system works or doesn't right. work. <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, so that's the key. So pick that book up and learn about our government. Yeah, I tried to write it a little bit as a thriller so people could, would keep reading because, you know, cloture votes on judicial nomination, <laughs> not, not always the most captivating uh, subject. <laughs> Maureen Dowd, a friend of mine, and sure. she read it and she goes, you did it. Even even though we know what's going to happen, I want to turn the page. So I yes, think I, I yes. was successful. Yeah, good for you. Uh, pick the book up. It is called Confirmation Bias. It is so good to hear your voice, pal. I miss you. And I appreciate you joining us here. And uh, just keep doing what you're doing. You are um, a treasure because you have so much institutional knowledge about our Congress. And we really need that now. So uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. All right, Jerry. Rock on. Yes, rock on. All right. Uh, all right. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. And I want to thank our producer, executive producer, Mike Gugat, our technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pods. And of course, Dave, our announcer, and John Terzis, our contributing voice talent, the voice over Tampa Bay. And until next week, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. 
Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.